Uh, we're continuing our series tonight on uh, real faith in the real world. We're looking at the book of James. And the purpose of the letter of James is to really help people that are scattered all around, believers that are scattered all over living, to live consistently with the things that they learned in Christ while they're undergoing hard times. Because what you find is a lot of times when people are undergoing hard times, they can begin to think wrongly about themselves. Uh, they can begin to think wrongly about their circumstances or, or other people or God. They can begin to think, you know, they, they wonder, you know, why they're undergoing some of those circumstances. Um, sometimes they wonder, you know, is, is, is God there? Uh, if he is there, does he even care? Does he know? Uh, is he able to help? Or they, they look at it and they think, is this something I said or something I did or, or something I didn't do? Is that why I'm suffering? Is that, is that what's going on? And what we're tempted to do is whenever we face suffering, we're tempted to, to think things and we're tempted to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Because a lot of times it's just to stay safe or, or, or to fit in or, or, or just to get by because we're, we're really not sure exactly what to do in situations like that. So what James does is he writes this letter to help people understand how do you live as faithful followers of Christ in a very dangerous world? How do you do that? And what he does is he writes about how, how to stay faithful, how to see ourselves rightly, how to see God rightly, how to have God's perspective on that. So tonight, what we're going to be looking at is a little bit about what is God's perspective on suffering. And James, James, sees, see, we don't think of suffering as normal. In fact, if, if you've noticed, you, you start going through the day, you know, if, if I'm walking through the day and, and I bump into Caleb, I say, Caleb, how how you doing? And he says, great. I go, okay, cool. We walk right on, you know. If I bump into him, I say, Caleb, how you doing? He goes, not good. Not good. Why? You know, he's like, well, now why? Because we think good's normal. Good's not normal. We live in a world where, you know, things are, you know, out of kilter. We live in a world where suffering is a natural byproduct of things. I mean, if we're walking along, I say, Caleb, how you doing? He goes, good, good. Why? What is going on? I mean, we got, there's something wrong. I mean, that ought to be different because honestly, you know, suffering is just a normal, natural part of life. And that's one of the things James wants us to see. In fact, what James will contend for is that suffering and trials are tools in the hand of God that he uses to make us perfect and complete. And that little word perfect is one that uh, James loves. He uses it like seven times in this book. And it's a word that means wholeness. Uh, it means, you know, you're, you're totally whole, you're totally complete. In other words, you're living completely integrated with your actions, always consistent with the values and beliefs that you've learned from Jesus totally consistent. Now, what James knows is this. Most of us don't live lives like that. Most of us live very fractured lives where we have large holes in our lives that don't quite match up, or we have a whole series of little holes that don't quite match up. And so what James does is he comes along and he says, I want to help you to see how you can live a life that is really integrated fully in, in the things you say, the things you do, and the things you believe, where it's all in one. Now, in chapter 5 right here, to kind of set the stage for you, James starts off in chapter 5, a section we're not covering tonight, where he's talking about people who have cheated and mistreated people. What they did was, uh, these were some of the ones that were wealthy, and they had people they'd hired, and then they didn't pay them their wages. And, you know, they were just kind of like, hey, 
we, we, we can't pay you. But then these people that were, you know, now without money and, and, you know, destitute would look at them and would see them taking those very funds and living very lavishly and spending it upon themselves and, and just living a life of want and pleasure all over the place. And they would be like, what's up with that? And on top of that, they would turn around and really treat these people that were working for them and treat these other people that had less. They would treat them in a very bad way. And God speaks to them in verses 1 through 6. And he says, now here's some things you guys can expect. But then in verse 7, he turns the focus, not from those who are persecuting, but to those who are being persecuted. And he says, let me talk to you about suffering. And let me tell you some things about what you need to do and how you can take and have my perspective on this and how you can take and live in the, in the real world in such a way that you really profit from this. And so there's four things we're going to look at tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you these up front. That way, if you fall asleep or, you know, you have to go call grandma or something, you know, you'll, you'll have those already. So four things. One, be patient. Second, strengthen your heart. Third, don't complain. Fourth, don't swear. Now, we'll cover each one of those individually, but, um, you know, those are the four. So be patient. Strengthen your heart. Don't complain. Don't swear. So before we uh, start tonight, what I'd like to do, I'd like us to look at the passage. We're looking at James uh, 5, verses 7 through 12, and we'll, we'll uh, kind of read through that real quickly, and then we'll break it down and talk about what he's talking uh, about here. He starts off, he says, therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore, always see what it's there for. So he's talking about, he says, therefore. In other words, in light of the suffering that you've been facing, this is how you ought to respond. This is what you ought to do. So he says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too, be patient, strengthen your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So, James starts off, and the very first thing he does is he shines the light on the part of the answer to the question of how do we respond right when we've been wronged? And he starts off with an illustration, but he starts off saying, be patient, be patient. He says, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer, the illustration he used, waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. Now, we live in a very instant culture. And that has made some companies very wealthy. I mean, you know, if you want something, you order it from Amazon. Why? Because it'll be there by the time you get home. And, you know, it's just like that. In fact, one day, Melinda and I are talking this gospel truth here. We're, we're sitting there in the living room, and she's talking about something. I said, you know, I ought, to, I ought to look that up. Maybe they have that on Amazon. And they did. And I said, I'll order it. And it's supposed to be two-day delivery, you know, because you have Prime. And so I thought, okay, well, this is great. 
So I ordered, it's like eight o'clock at night. And so I said, okay, so I ordered the thing. The next morning I get up and I'm walking out my front door at like 7.30 and I look down and there on my porch is the book. And I thought, they were listening. I mean, they were in the house or something. I mean, why? We, I mean, and they, see, they make all sorts of bank on that because they know we live in an instant world. We want things right now. You know, you ever put something in the microwave and you're sitting there and it's, you punch 30 seconds and you're going, hurry, hurry, hurry. You know, we live in an instant world. AT&T comes by and they visit us and they go, how fast is your internet? We go, this fast. We can be this fast. Really? You know, and I think, you know, maybe you can, but then I, I think they're lying. Um, <laughs> We live in an instant world. Farmers don't. Farmers don't live in an instant world. Just as a farmer learns to wait patiently for the crop that he's wanting to take in so that he'll actually, you know, see the fruit of his labors, Christians have to learn to be patient. And that's one of the things that James is saying. He says the farmer understands there are things that are out of his control. And there are things that, you know, he can do. He can do the tilling. He can do the watering. He can do the planting. But he has to trust God in areas that he has no control over, like the rains. He, he doesn't have control over that. The word he uses here for patience, it's actually two Greek words that he combines together. And it's, it's a word, it means to be long-tempered or long-suffering. Actually, when it was used in the Old Testament, the, the word in the Old Testament means long-nosed. And um, like your nose, yeah. And, and the reason is what he's saying, when you face these suffering when you face these trials take a deep breath hold on and begin to be patient begin to wait begin to trust God don't lose heart God is not going to right all the wrongs in this world until Jesus comes back so you know be patient don't don't expect everything to be done right now it's it's not Amazon um, so what allows us to patiently suffer. You know, when he says, you know, while you're suffering, be patient. What, what allows you to do that? Well, you know, being patient in negative circumstances, what that really means is you are waiting on God to handle things in the way he best sees fit at his own time. See, like the farmer waiting for the harvest, he says, be patient. For, for thousands of years, if you go over there to the Holy Lands, what you find is this, that they have these annual cycles of rain. They have one season uh, where the early rains come and that allows the seed to germinate. And then there's months where it's drier. And then all of a sudden the latter rains come, which causes it to really take root and grow. And when Jesus likens this farmer's anticipation for the latter rains with a Christian's expectation of God's return, he emphasizes there the need for patience. And what he's saying is looking forward to Christ's return and all that that's going to entail for us should allow us to really be patient. And you say, why? Because, guys, for us that know him, this is as bad as it gets. For those that don't know him, this is as good as it gets. And so you look and you think there's the things that we, we walk through life sometimes. We're like, oh, this is such a big deal. Oh, I, I'm, I'm suffering this. Oh, this happened to me. Then you realize, if this is as bad as it gets, this isn't that bad. Good night. In fact, this is very bearable. I can wait till Jesus comes. But, you know, if you haven't come to know him, I mean, you look at this, you think, this seems pretty bad. Well, sorry, this seemed pretty bad, but this is as good as it gets, you know, if, if, if you don't have a relationship there. So we can strengthen our hearts knowing that, you know, 
we, we can look to him. Secondly, he says, you know, the second command he gives relates to how we should respond when wrong. He says, you too, be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. And this strengthen your hearts refers to like your inner disposition. It's kind of like what's going on inside. The word strengthen, it, it means to fix something firmly in place. And when he's talking about heart, he's not talking about like the organ that beats in your chest. He's talking about the control center of your life, your will, you know, you, the, the kind of the cockpit of your life. And what he's saying there is make sure that the control center is firmly in place. In other words, what he's encouraging us to do is have a right perspective. Have a right perspective. Our perspective tends to come from the dialogue that goes on in our minds about who we are and who God is and how life works. And each one of us, that's going to be a little different. We look at that and, and sometimes we think, you know, we, we have these thoughts on, we think, okay, this is how life works and, and this is how, how God acts and, and this is really who I am. The only problem is a lot of times we can be very wrong. And especially when you're going through suffering, when you're suffering, you can have all sorts of wrong thoughts about you and about God and about how things work. And, and you can look at them and just be very confused about what's going on there. What tends to happen is this, you know, we tend to have like an experience and we'll have an experience. And, and then we have, we, we think sometimes, you know, well, my my perspective is based on my experience. No, it's not. You know, we'll have an experience, but then we have like our, um, your interpretation of that experience. In fact, if we can pull that up there, there you can see that. Your experience, then you've got like your interpretation of that. This is what happened and this is what I think about that, which causes your thoughts on that, which then triggers your feelings on that, yielding your perspective. So you have an experience, you have your interpretation of that, you have your thoughts, which produce your feelings, which yields your perspective. The problem is this. Our emotions are not created by what happens to us. They're created by our interpretation, what we tell ourselves about what happens to us. Two people can go through exactly the same thing and come out with very different things depending upon their perspective. You know, let's say... Um, Let's say that um, somebody, you know, walks in. Let's say Sam walks in and he walks into a Bible study here. And when he does, he walks in and somebody comes up and goes, Sam, it's so good to have you here. We'd like you to do this. And Sam's like, oh, great. And so, you know, he walks right in. Now he has a friend with him and his friend there. They're inviting them both to come over. Now, depending upon Sam's perspective, when he walks in, Sam walks in and somebody invites him and he goes, this is great. These people are so inclusive. They're so kind. This is great. His friend with him goes, these people are really pushy. They're really wanting us involved right here. Or somebody doesn't say something to him and they don't pull him right into a group. And Sam goes, this is so great. I'm telling you what, people give you space right here. That's all there is to it. You know, I love this. And his friend goes, these people are so unfriendly. They didn't invite us in. What happened? Now, what happened differently? Nothing. The exact same thing happened to them. 
The difference was their perspective. That's why it's so, so vitally important that we have our perspective informed by God. And that's so vitally important that we get our perspective straightened out. Because if you don't, you can encounter the very same things that God wants you to learn from and grow from and experience, and yet you won't see it. It'll, it'll come across wrong because of the perspective that you're taking into it. So you want to learn to have something different. You know, when, um, when we feel we've been done wrong, our native response is just retaliation. In fact, in the book of Colossians, when Paul's talking about some of these things, he says there's things you want to, that are in your life just naturally as you uh, come into the world. He said, there's some of those things you want to put off, and then there's some things you want to put on. All of those things that he mentions in, in uh, Colossians 3.8 are native reactions to ours when we've been wronged. Things like anger, uh, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from the mouth. You know, that's, that's where that whole other thing, we'll talk about that another time. But, you know, all those things are things Paul says, you need to put those off. You need to get rid of those. We don't want to retaliate. But what you find is this, the only way to really do what Paul says here, or what James says here, the only way to really strengthen our hearts and have a right perspective is if we see the activity of God in our circumstances. If you don't see the activity of God in your circumstances, it won't work. And we've got great examples of that in Scripture. One of those would be the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph was the youngest of 12 boys. So, hey, how would you like to have that around the house? I mean, honestly, you know, I mean, you'd run out of food a lot. Um, youngest of 12 boys. Anybody have younger brothers? Yeah, 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 yeah. Anybody are the youngest brother? Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. This is for you. Um, so, Joseph was one of those, you know, I mean, like he started off, you know, he would come home and tattle to his dad about his brothers. And so they'd think, you know, dad will leave here soon and you will pay. And, uh, you know, and they would, you know, not, they, they didn't really think highly of him. And then his dad buys him one of these, you know, USC coats or something, you know, and he gets to wear it and all of his brothers have to wear like, you know, blue and gold and stuff. And so they're, you know, they're, they're feeling bad already. And so they don't like it and stuff. And then to compound that, you know, he comes in and he starts saying things like, you know, I had a dream the other night. And in this dream, like I had these sheaves and I was holding them up. And then you guys had sheaves and all of your sheaves were bowing down to my sheaf. What do you think that dream means? You know, and his brothers are like, oh, I hate that guy, you know, and they're going on. And he goes, you know, I had another dream. And, you know, the sun and the moon and 11 stars. I mean, how many of us are there? Uh, uh, you know, they were all bowing down to me. Um, what do you think that means? You know, and, and so his brothers didn't think highly of Joseph. And in fact, you know, one day when his dad says, Joseph, go out there and take some food to your brothers and see them. You know, his brothers see him coming and they go, let's kill him. And then one of them goes, no, let's sell him. We can make money. And so they did. And so they sell him into slavery. He gets sent down to Egypt. And you know the story when he gets down there, he gets down there and he gets placed in this guy's Potiphar's home. And Mrs. Potiphar is one of those people that just, you know, thinks 
need to chase Joseph around. So she's out there and she's trying to get Joseph to come and hang out with her. And he's like, no, 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 no Netflix and chill. No, we're not. No, no, we're not doing that. No, no. And so, you know, he's running over there. And so finally, you know, she accuses him. She says, oh, no, no, uh, Mr. Potiphar, you know, he was trying, he was trying to lay with me. And so the next thing, you know, he goes to prison and he goes to prison. And while he's in prison, he gets to take over this whole thing in the prison because he's really faithful and he's handling things. And so a couple of his buddies come up and say, we've had dreams. And he said, let me tell you what those dreams mean. And he tells them. And he goes, now when you get out, remember me. And they go, okay. And they don't. And so he's sitting there in prison, rotting away for a couple more years until finally one day, you know, Pharaoh has a dream and they don't know what to do with that. So Joseph interprets his dream and consequently gets put out and made the second in control of all of Egypt. Now, if there was ever anybody that had reason to retaliate, had reason to be resentful, I mean, whether it was to the guys who forgot him in prison or whether it was, you know, Mrs. Potiphar or whether it was to his brothers or whether it was to whomever, if there was ever anybody that could logically be bent, it was Joseph. And yet, what you see with him, that wasn't. And it was because of his perspective. Years later, when his brothers come and they're kind of groveling up there to get food so that they can live because there's this huge famine in the land, they come and they realize it's Joseph and they think they're going to get payback. But instead, he doesn't offer them payback. He offers love instead. And he says this to him in Genesis 50, 20. As for you, when speaking about what they did, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people. See, what had happened was Joseph was put in charge of all this. He told him there's going to be this big famine in the land. And he said, I'm going to be able, you know, what you need to do is you need to store all this grain. That way you'll be able during these seasons of plenty to have lots of food. And then later on, when these things happen, what you'll do is you'll be able to um, have food and you'll be able to help all the other nations, which they did. And so they're able to do that. And so Joseph, that's what he's referring to here. They were able to do all that. But see, the difference was Joseph, he saw the activity of God in his suffering. He saw the activity of God and what God was trying to accomplish through that. Unless you see the activity of God in your suffering, you'll always want to retaliate. You'll always want to, to act in a way that is outside of what God has for you. So you've got to see that. So James gives us those two things. Be patient, strengthen your heart. And then he gives us two things not to do. Our tendency when we suffer is to kind of want to take things in our own hands, you know, like, well, all right, God, I understand how this is. Now I'm going to have to take care of me. So, you know, and we do things that we think make sense to us. One of the very first ones is the core one, and that's why he deals with it first. And it's don't complain. Don't complain. See, when you're complaining, what you're doing is you're looking for someone to fix the blame on for your situation. What you don't realize is fixing the blame does not fix the problem. Not at all. And so you, you work on those sort of things. But what James says is this. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another 
so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. And there he's referring to Christ coming back again. But he's saying, hey, you know what? Don't, don't complain. Complaining happens when we don't get what we want or we don't get it in accord with our preference. That's when we begin to complain. When you suffer or someone treats you differently than you want, it tends to fall into that category. And that's the thing that goes on. You know, we, we, we find out at a young age that whining and complaining kind of gets us what we want. You know, you see little kids and they're like, I want this. They're like, parents are like, no, you're not going to have that. And they're going, I want it. And they kick and scream and yell and stuff. And the parents go, I'm telling you, here. You know, why? Because there's one thing parents want more than healthy children, and that is quiet. And so, you know, they'll just give them stuff, you know, and, and they just try to do that. But you can't do that, you know, and that's what we learn. And we think that it carries over into our adult lives. So we become adults and we continue with the habit of um, complaining. In fact, I think people really just develop habits. Have you noticed how much people complain? Not you, of course, but I mean your roommates and, and others around you. I mean, have you noticed how much they complain? Just, we've made an art form of it. I mean, you know, you, you go to breaks at work when you work jobs. One of these days, there's this new thing that's going to happen. You'll get out. You'll go to work. Um, you'll work all the time. Some of you have had internships. You've noticed this. And you go in. What do people do in break, room, break rooms? Complain, don't they? I mean, it's like an art form. You know, they're, 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 let me tell you about this. Then they get off. People come in. People go. Now you say, boy, I'll tell you what, that's going to be bad in a job. You don't have to wait. Just go to class. When you walk out of class after you take a test that you, of course, were prepared for because you got plenty of sleep and studied like you should. Yeah, right. It's no one else's fault. Yeah, so, um, so you did that, but when you walk out, is everyone going, he is the most fair professor I've ever seen in my life. I love the way that he picked up on those little nuances and included those on the test. I enjoyed that. He really taught me to study harder. Anybody hear that this week? No, 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 no. See, we complain all the time. What you see is it's so common that Paul, when he's talking to the believers in Philippi, he says this, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. He says, it is a command, by the way, in case you're wondering, is that a suggestion there at the first? No, it's a command. He says, <clears throat> excuse me, do all things without grumbling or disputing. You see other translations, they say without grumbling or complaining, or you see others, they say without complaining or disputing. All of those things are, are adequate translations of that. But what he's saying is, you know, you need to stop that. You need to stop complaining. And he says, if you do, you are going to shine like stars in the night. You know why that is? Because everyone else is complaining. And so everyone else looks, you know, complaining, grumbling. What that does, 
that demonstrates a spirit of discontent. And what it really marks, it marks somebody that is dissatisfied with their situation. And more importantly, honestly, um, they're probably upset with the one in charge. Because what they think is this. If God handled things differently, then I would be better off. Or if this was just different. And so when you look at that, we need to um, think about that. We've developed such a habit of complaining, and we have this kind of a thought that goes on in our minds. It's like, I have all these feelings, and I think I need to express them. Um, what am I supposed to do with them? When I walk out of that test, I have all these feelings. When I walk into the break room, I have all these feelings. When my roommate uses my groceries, I have all these feelings. What do I do with these things? I'm glad you asked. Um, the biblical term for what you need to do is this, lament. In other words, bring your gripes to God. Bring your gripes to God. See, if you look at the book of Psalms, you see this all over the place. We tend to think of the book of Psalms as like a book about worship, and it is. Uh, it, a, lot, a lot of worship in there. But 42 out of the 150 Psalms are laments. 42 of those. Now, what is a lament? Thank you for asking. Laments are the cries of our heart to God, searching for understanding and peace in the midst of suffering or in the midst of disheartening circumstances. It's the cry of our hearts to God. Now, I don't know about you, men and women, but what I will tell you is this. Some of the best times I have ever had with God in my life started off laments. It started off as I would come before him and I would say, I need to talk to you because right now things are not going well. And I would lay things out before him and I would come away with a totally different perspective at the end. And I would come away thinking, you know, wow, the way I was looking at that was really wrong. I need to look at that this way. Or I would come away with, with a whole sense of encouragement and, and stuff like that. Because what you do, you know, is you, you lay your frustrations, you lay your hurts out before him. Often, I think the reason people aren't experiencing some of those things with God they're spending more time complaining than they are lamenting. Now, there's basically three parts to lamenting. It's, it's really simple. You come before God and you tell Him what you feel. Secondly, you cast your cares that you have that are on your heart, those things that are troubling you, those, those sufferings, the, the wrongs that are done to you, the, the perceived wrongs that are done to you. You take all of those things and you cast those cares upon God and then thirdly, with an expression of confidence in him, replacing complaints in your life with praise. You begin to have this, this heart before him where you say, you know, God, this is going on and this is going on and this is going on. But you, God, you are the one who can change all of this. And you have this thing that you come before him where you actually realize, you know what? 
This is as bad as it ever gets for me. I mean, honestly, this isn't bad. This isn't that bad. And you are able to have perspective. You're able to look at things. In Psalm 42, I told you there were 40, uh, 42 out of the 50. Just Psalm 42 is one of the 42. And so what I want to do is I want to just read this to you. As I read you this psalm, what I want you to do is I want you to listen for those three elements. Listen for the three elements we just talked about in this. Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? I remember these things and pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude and walk them to the house of God. With a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude celebrating a festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence, my God. My soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have passed over me. The Lord will send his goodness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all day, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you restless within me? Wait for God, for I will again praise him for the help of his presence, my God. When you're going through sufferings, what I'd encourage you is don't complain to others. Lament to God. And what you'll find is when you do, you'll really gain perspective. And what you'll find is you, you, you go to the one who has the answers anyway. Ben James reminds us that the ancient Hebrew prophets serve as examples to us of how to suffer with patience. In verse 10, he says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, James's audience, when he says this, they understood well what he was talking about with the Old Testament prophets, and it resonated with them. Because, you know, like, for instance, one of them that they were bound to have thought of was Daniel. And what they thought of was, you know what? You can be in the will of God and yet suffer. See, sometimes when you're suffering, do you ever feel like you're suffering and this, this just can't be God's will? Well, you can't be. I mean, Daniel was totally in the will of God about 30 seconds before he was tossed into the lion's den. Now, you know what? God was with him, though. And Daniel patiently endured. Or they think about, you know, God reminds us that he cares for us even when we're going through suffering. And they thought surely of Elijah because Elijah comes before you know, the wicked king Ahab, and he tells him, I'll tell you what, it is not going to rain in Israel for the next three and a half years. And he's like, okay. But guess who else lived in Israel for the next three and a half years? Elijah. And yet God took care of him all through that. 
And so what you see with Elijah, he patiently endured. And what he's telling him, he says, guys, you've got examples of people who have trusted God, who have patiently endured. Don't let that, don't let that trip you up. And then he zooms in on perhaps the greatest example of patient endurance when he tells him, remember Job. And he says, we count those blessed who've endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. I mean, Job, Job endured unimaginable things, both personally and, and financially and, and physically, to where, you know, all, through all of that, he refuses to blame God. And he refuses to lash out. He refuses to, you know, sit around and complain. He brings his laments before God. And James reminds us in this passage here, he says, Job's suffering was temporary. And then he had this abundant blessing that God gave to him, where God really restored him because that's who God is. And that's what God's like. And so, you know, remind us of that. Then James gets down to the last command. We had the first three. The last command, do not swear. He says, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or in any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, the word swear swear here does not refer like primarily to profanity or anything like that. Although when you're suffering, sometimes you're thinking, that is an option. Uh, you know, I, I may want to consider that, but that's not what he's talking about here. What the word is, it's a word that means to take an oath. See, what happens a lot of times when we suffer, um, we say things that we don't mean, or we're prone to make rash decisions or promises when we're under duress. And a lot of times what we do is we call on God in making that commitment. They'll say something like, you know, God is my witness. I'll tell you what's going to happen here. Or by God, we're going to do such and such. And see, when you do that, what, what James says, no, 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 no. You're, you're out of bounds there. You're out of bounds. You know, um, when suffering, we want to add some extra unction to something we say. And so we're tempted to make oaths like that, to say things like that. But James got his teaching from Jesus. You know, he's, he looked at what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says almost identically the same thing. He says, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or, back, or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. What James is saying men and women is this. If you need an oath to convince someone, it's a character problem you have, not a word problem. See, what he's saying is if you are working to live an integrated life that God is wanting to where, you know, you're, you're really growing into that, then you have the ability to simply say yes or no, and people will believe you. Using oaths, what that indicates is there's a character development that really needs to take place in your life. And so we started with the question, how can I do right when I've done wrong? And let me just review for you really quickly the answer to that. The first one is, is, you know, be patient. Look forward to Christ's return and all that entails 
and that will help you to patiently endure. Secondly, strengthen your heart. The only way you're going to do that is developing the right kind of perspective by seeing God in your circumstances and seeing Him involved in the suffering of your life. Third thing, don't complain. When you go through suffering, don't complain to others. Lament to God. If you do, He'll help you with that. And lastly, don't swear. If you need to make an oath to convince someone, that's a character problem. It's not a word problem. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. And, and that's enough. Let me pray. And I'll invite the worship team back up. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we don't have to uh, wonder um, how to go about living integrated lives. That you, in your kindness, have, have given us your word so that we can uh, not only see all of the examples of folks in the Old Testament that, that as Paul and as Jesus both mentioned, uh, they live as examples for us, for us to see your your faithfulness and your kindness and your compassion and, and your goodness and, and your judgment. They help us to see all of those. And uh, Father, you, you've given us clear guidance as far as uh, how to live more fully integrated lives, lives that are pleasing to you and a blessing to others. So I pray that we would take these things seriously. We would really weave them in to the fabric of our lives so that we could be a joy to you that you've always been to us. And we pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.